Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. And today on the podcast, I'm going to talk about greedflation, which is a recently popular term, which means that inflation is coming from capitalists hiking prices too much. Uh, But before I get into that, a word from our sponsor. This episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored by Simplify ETFs. Simplify is a new ETF provider offering alternative investment strategies with full transparency, daily liquidity, and low costs. Some of their hedge fund-style strategies include managed futures, commodity trend following, steepener trades, and more. So if if you are an individual investor, an RIA, you will likely find a compelling alternative investment from Simplify that can help improve your portfolio. Check out their website at simplify.us. You can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. And as always now, uh, we have one more preliminary, and that's the trivia question for today. Uh, It's a very short question, and it's a short answer. Characterize, or or represent might be a better word, the Ubilides paradox in one sentence, or actually... Ubilides was known for a bunch of paradoxes or paradoxes. I don't know. Anyway, the most well-known one of those is what I'm looking for. The Ubilides paradox. Give me one sentence that best characterizes it. And now let's go back to talking about greedflation. First of all, let me just say up front that I hate the urge that people seem to have to invent new words by contracting other words uh, inappropriately. So the most annoying of these is calling any scandal about XYZ, XYZ gate. Obviously, that all harkens back to Watergate, but the original Watergate scandal wasn't a scandal about water. It had to do with the Watergate Hotel. So gate wasn't a modifier. And it shouldn't be a modifier for travel gate or any other gate that you want to have. Similarly, in doesn't modify flation. So replacing in in inflation with shrink for shrinkflation or greed for greedflation is just laziness. It's not saying what you just want to say. In the case of shrinkflation, it's laziness about saying, Holding prices constant and shrinking the quantity given is the same thing as charging you a higher price. Okay, it's faster to say shrinkflation, uh, but also saying shrinkflation makes it sound like you've come up with something really clever that no one has ever noticed, when in fact, everyone knows that and the BLS already accounts for it in the CPI in terms of quality adjustment. So it's, there's nothing at all shocking about that, but you call it shrinkflation and it sounds like you, you've come up with something new. So what does greedflation mean? We can sort of, you know, decompose it here. Well, it means that the flation is being caused by greed. Higher prices are being caused by greed. Not your greed as the consumer. That greed, I guess, is good. You should want more for less. But the greed of the person selling it to you, who should want to give you more for less. Okay, see, so their greed is bad. Your greed is good. Now, really, the notion of greed in a capitalist society only makes sense if you think of it 
the person on the other side being a spoiled rich brat or a faceless corporation, you know, who's on the other side of your transaction. If it's the neighbor kid who wants to raise the price he charges you to mow your lawn, it's easier to understand that his desire to get more is just the mirror image of your desire to give less. Which one of the, the two of you is being greedy? You're both being greedy. And that's okay. It's a, a capitalist society is a, is a, uh, a society where two sides come together in a, uh, an antagonistic way <laughs> to, to argue for their own points and to get the best, uh, the best exchange between them. That's what the exchange is all about. So there's no reason to think that it's always the seller who's the greedy one. Or is it just that anyone who has something that I want, who isn't already giving it to me, is greedy? I, I, it seems like, you know. So anyway, let's leave the sophist part of the argument behind. Greedflation means that inflation is higher than it would otherwise be because companies are increasing prices more than their costs are increasing. Thus, they are adding to inflation by increasing their profits. And that sounds bad. But let's, but let's step back and think about the price system because that's at the root of all of capitalism. And let's think about how someone would go about maximizing profits by pushing prices up. The function of price is to balance the quantity supplied and the quantity demanded of some good or service. In a free, frictionless, and purely competitive market, if there's too much demand for something relative to its supply, the price goes up. If there's too much supply of something relative to its demand, its price falls. And in that hypothetical, free, frictionless, purely competitive market, if I charge a higher price, then I sell exactly zero because there's ample supply to fill the demand at the lower price. Um, in reality, of course, there are frictions. If I am selling cars, I have to put a price on this car, this new model that's coming out. I have to guess at what at I have to guess at what demand will be at that price, so that I I know how many cars to produce, or maybe I know how many cars to produce, and I want to put a price on it so I make sure I sell all of those things. Um, I also want to know how elastic that demand is. How much will changing the price just a little bit affect my total you know quantity sold, my total revenue? I have to guess at that equilibrium price. No one's telling it to me. If I'm wrong, I either have too many cars left on the lot, and so I've, I've put too much cost in, I've produced too much, and I have leftovers, or I have a shortage, and I have customers who are unsatisfied. Both of these are bad things. Customers that are unsatisfied or too many cars left on the lot. And, and so I have to balance, in setting price, I have to balance the chances of them of those two things happening. If in the purely competitive market, everyone's a price taker. You just look at what the price is and you charge the same price. The reality, the real world doesn't work that way. You have to set a price if you're selling something. And, and, and you take lots of inputs, but at the end of the day, it's got to be a guess. Actually, I guess, you know, whenever you think about prices, you, you think about trading and, and you, you know, it's a very pure and competitive market in a lot of ways. And, and so it's very much like, you know, thinking about being a bond trader. If I just bought 50 million 30-year tips from a customer, the question that I as the trader ask immediately, if I'm a market maker, is, you know, what price do I need to sell those 
those bad boys at to get them off my balance sheet. If I guessed too low, then I sold the bonds, but I left some profit on the table, and maybe I end up short if somebody says, well, I'd, I'd like $100 million instead of $50 million. If I guess too high a price, then I'm sort of stuck with them, and I didn't make any money. I, I still have them sitting on my balance sheet, so, and I'm holding the risk. So, so if I'm selling my cars, and I, I decide to go for a high price uh, because of greed, okay? Now, I can't make you buy the car. If I price it too high, then don't buy it. But if people buy at that price, then it isn't my fault for putting the price on it, right? The price stuck because the demand was sufficient at that price to move all my supply. If it sticks, you must acquit. It can't be my greed if, in fact, other people are in a free exchange choosing to pay that price. And so we're not talking about, you know, selling plywood in a hurricane, that kind of thing. We're talking about regular markets functioning normal times in at least quasi-competitive uh, markets. Now, if we're talking about non-competitive markets, like monopolies or oligopolies, you know, airlines maybe, uh, you know, then it's not quite as true, but there's still limits to the price you can put on something. And if companies in an oligopoly or a monopoly weren't pricing at that limit, before and they are now, right? Because this is the greedflation there. They're pushing out their margins. And so if they're now doing it, but they weren't doing it before, then the, really the question is, why weren't they trying to maximize profits previously? Anyway, the solution to monopolies and oligopolies is the same, and that is break them up. If the problem is that, that companies have too much market power and are pushing prices higher because of that market power, then break them up. It's we've got the Sherman Antitrust Act and uh, and a, a whole host of other antitrust mechanisms that that can allow us to do that to companies who are big from something other than superior skill, foresight, and industry. Um, I recommend, by the way, if you want to think about the whole notion of being big and 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 how breaking up bigness. Uh, leads to gains, there's a, a, an old book called The Bigness Complex that was written uh, partly by a, an old professor of mine, Walter Adams, um, and uh, it's an outstanding book, and it's in the, uh, it's in the show notes. Um, by the way, if monopolies are bad, why are monop monopsonies, okay, so concentrated buyers or one big buyer like the Medicare system, why are they good? I mean, if greed on the side of the consumer is okay, but not greed the other way, that sounds a little bit like moral relativism to me. But I digress. Uh, so anyway, that's what's happening when prices are being set. But the greedflation camp gets help from this fact. Margins have been expanding as inflation has risen. Isn't that prima facie evidence prima facie evidence, prima facie evidence. Anyway, isn't that good evidence proving that higher margins are contributing to inflation? In a word, no, uh, because everything doesn't happen everywhere all at once, no matter what Daniel Scheinart says. If you don't get the reference, check the show notes. Uh, I am setting prices today for the goods I'm putting on the shelves, 
not on the basis of the price that I paid for those goods, but on the price that I have to pay now to replace them on the shelves when someone buys them. Okay, so if I bought something in 1979, if I bought a gallon of gasoline, 1979, for 40 cents, I'm making that up, it's probably more like 60 cents, 1979, and I still have that gallon of gasoline and I have to go sell it now, where do I price it? Do I price it 65 cents? Of course not. I'll price it something close to three or four dollars, whatever the kind of the going rate is. Okay, and that's the price at which I would have to replace that gallon of gasoline in my inventory, not the inventory cost. And that's that's really important because that's the economic reality of what happens. The accounting reality is that when I sell that item, my profit is the realized price minus the cost of my inventory, the cost that I did historically buy that item at. And I bought that inventory at an earlier time. And so in inflationary times, margins tend to rise, especially for goods-producing firms and firms that tend to carry a lot of inventory because of that timing mismatch between when they buy something for sale and when it actually sells. Because prices in, in, a, in an environment where prices are continuously rising and you're always having to buy the inventory before you sell it, you're always going to systematically be, be owning inventory that has a higher market value or higher replacement value than the price that you originally bought it at. Now, if you use LIFO accounting, last in, first out, it it changes this to some extent if you don't have full turnover. Um, but only about 15 or 20% of companies in the U.S. use LIFO, partly because it tends to lower reported profits, which tends to lower stock prices. So you can choose. You can follow FIFO, first in, first out, and you can get accused of greedflation, or you can follow LIFO and listen to your shareholders bitch at you. So obviously 80% of companies out there have chosen FIFO because they'd rather have their stock price go up, and if someone says they're greedy, well, so be it. I'm digressing again. Okay. So anyway, the important thing to remember is that most of the things which influence price are out of the control of the firm that's setting the prices. The amount of money airdropped into your customers' wallets affects the price that you can charge. Indeed, it's, it affects the price you have to charge if you don't want empty shelves, as we saw at the early stage of the, or in the middle stages, I guess, of the, the COVID shutdown. But you don't control that amount of money that was airdropped. When the guy down the street, and, and by the way, that's an important point. I'm setting the price so that I don't always have empty shelves, right? The setting the price is regulating that supply and demand. And so when all of a sudden something serious changes on one side of that equation, then I've got to change the price. And it's, it's not greed that's making me do that. What the guy down the street or around the corner or on Amazon is charging for exactly the same thing, it also affects what I can charge, but I don't have any control over what that person is charging. Sure, sure, sure. Your gizmo that you're selling is better than all of the other gizmos competing with you. And, and it should, of course, earn a premium because your gizmo is so much better. But still, you have to take the general price of a gizmo as an input when setting the price of your gizmo. Except in really concentrated industries, price is largely exogenous. 
you have some idea of the inputs. The inputs are, are being caused by other things that go into your price, and you have some wiggle room about how you interpret that, and you have some additional wiggle room about whether or not you think you can squeeze out a little bit more profit or not. But if you're wrong, the market is very good, and I don't mean the stock market, the, the market for the good is very good at punishing you and making sure that if you set the price too high, you have too much inventory left over. If you set it too low, you run out of inventory. Two more quick points. <clears throat> First, everything that I've been talking about so far is micro. It's microeconomics. It's an individual product market, an individual service market. And figuring out the macro question of inflation is not generally best done by looking at micro interactions and summing them up. It doesn't tend to work very well that way. That's the, it, it, doing that is what makes you think that it's demand that causes inflation or supply constraints that cause inflation rather than too much money in the system because you can't see on a microeconomic basis, looking at one product market, you can't see what the effect uh, is of all that extra money plopped into the system. But most assuredly, quadrupling the money supply will affect the price, the nominal price, maybe not the real price. Second quick point, and, and I, I keep returning to this in the, in the podcasts for, in different contexts because there's a sinister undercurrent to this story that capitalist greed is causing inflation. When I'm asked about what one thing most scares me about the economy these days, it isn't that we might have a recession. Those are normal. They happen. It might be a bad one, might be a not so bad one, like I think, but whatever. Recessions are recessions. It isn't that interest rates are going to stay high for a while. They're actually now not all that high. They're probably slightly higher than a long-term normal. Um, and it isn't even... I don't even have a, the, the fear that, that central banks are using the wrong tool to address inflation, which is true. Uh, and by the way, um, you can see this week's Inflation Guy blog post, Enough with Interest Rates Already, link in the notes. Um, that's a fear, although it's less of a fear because it's actually happening. Um, but that's not my biggest fear. My biggest fear, if I have to pick one, is that legislators or administrators will decide to fix prices or wages, okay? Say, you cannot raise your prices higher than 2% a year or whatever it is. And the reason that I'm concerned about that is for some time now, we've been seeing stories. We keep seeing stories about how, oh, it's fine. It's just fine. Price fixing is fine. It happens all the time. It works. It always works. And that completely wrecks the historical record, which is very clear that price fixing does not work. It's a really horrible thing. But we keep seeing stories trying to rewrite that historical record, and that scares me a little bit. And because it sort of feels like someone's setting us up. Now, to be sure, when we had two movies that came out about asteroids hitting the planet in the same year, I kind of got a little bit concerned that we might be people might be warning us that we're about to have an asteroid hit. So so maybe this is maybe this is not, you know. Maybe this is just me. But it's concerning because in order to do that, in order to go and, and make such a major change to the price system that you're just going to fix prices, you have to first make sure that you fully vilify the capitalist who wants to set his own prices. And, and making sure that 
the capitalist is who is blamed for inflation and not the surge in federal spending of printed money is one of the first things you do. And so when I see something like this and all the talk about greedflation, then, um, then I worry if that that could be part of the, the same the same campaign. Again, maybe I'm attributing too much to the Illuminati or whatever, but, um, but it does make me concerned. Anyway, that's all for, for today, um, except for the answer to the trivia question. And the trivia question was to characterize or represent the, the Eubulides, Eubulides paradox in one sentence. Well, fortunately, it's not always called the Eubulides paradox because I, I have trouble pronouncing it. It's often called the liar's paradox or the Epimenides paradox, which for some reason is easier to pronounce. And it's easiest, it's, it's represented by the statement, this sentence is false, which obviously can't be true because then it would be false. It can't be false because then it would be true. Uh, and so that is the a classic, classic paradox. And actually, uh, Eubulides actually is famous for many other paradoxes. And my favorite is the heap paradox. The heap paradox says one grain of sand isn't a heap. If you add another grain of sand to it, that obviously still is not a heap. You can add another grain of sand, and pretty soon you have a collection of individual grains of sand that's not really a heap. But obviously at some point it gets to be a heap of sand. So that's interesting. Or the or the horns paradox, which is uh, what the uh, it's these three statements are the horns paradox. What you have not lost, you have. You have not lost horns, therefore you have horns. So... Anyway, always try to add value in this podcast any way that I can. Make sure you check the show notes. That's all for today's podcast. Please like, subscribe, refer others. Contact me, inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com. You can subscribe for free to the blog at inflationguy.blog. If you want to subscribe to our quarterly or my private Twitter, use uh, checkout code podcast um, at the uh, inflationguy.blog shop and you'll get $20 off a subscription. Follow me on Twitter at inflation underscore guy. Visit Enduring Investments if you have an inflation challenge and defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. Remember, you know a guy.